Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. If you want to know about Kubernetes, you should probably talk to the guy who built, pitched, and then implemented K8 at Google. So that's who we called for this episode of Future of Tech. Joe Bida is one of the fathers of Kubernetes. And on this episode, he takes us behind the scenes of developing K8, including why they decided to open source the technology to level the playing field of app deployment. Today, Joe is a principal engineer at VMware, and he's still making waves in tech, particularly in the world of open source. Joe explains that working on open source projects fosters a sense of community and leads to more win-win scenarios that include integrated solutions that work for every vendor. Plus, Joe explains the future of edge computing and how service mesh and edge will work together. And he talks about the future of Kubernetes and why the ultimate goal is to have Kubernetes become boring. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. In today's uh, episode of Future of Tech, I'm happy to have with us uh, Joe Bida from VMware. Uh, hello, Joe. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to meet you. Yeah, it is a pleasure. I've seen, I, I read through the, the um, you know, your history and stuff. We'll go through, you know, the details, but I've seen that you literally worked in all the cool places. So you worked in Google and in Microsoft and VMware, obviously. So maybe uh, we'll start uh, at the beginning. You know, how did you first encounter technology as, as a youth? You know, with this just came up on Twitter the other day. Uh, I'm a second generation programmer. My father actually programmed uh, IBM mainframes here in the U.S. adding zip codes to mailing lists and built a, a small business on that that ended up being acquired and then did another startup doing a signature scanning for like mailing lists for like LaserJet printers at the time, you know, early on desktop publishing. And so my first job, gosh, I don't know, I must have been like, I don't know, 13, 14 was like doing like database programming for him for his customer lists, you know, uh, <laughs> early on. So like, you know, technology has always been a really big part of my life, um, you know, since, uh, since I can remember. Nice. And, and uh, you've studied probably um, something related and then went to work first for uh, Google or Google was not the first place? You know, in college, I did a couple of internships at Microsoft. And, uh, and then as I graduated, I ended up joining Microsoft. And at the time, I had a choice between 
the NT, the Windows NT kernel team and uh, Internet Explorer. And this was in like 97. And I'm like, I don't know if this Internet thing is going anywhere, but it seems like there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with IE. And so I was on, you know, IE and then related desktop technologies for about seven or eight years at Microsoft before before switching to Google. Nice. And your current role uh, in VMware? So I am principal engineer uh, for our modern applications platform business unit, but uh, really helping to coordinate a lot of, of what we're doing around Kubernetes across the company. Okay, good. So let's start a bit with Kubernetes. You know, many people are using Kubernetes and it's becoming like, uh, but for the audience that are, is just joining us, can you in an overview give us like, uh, what's so great about Kubernetes and why this uh, is being perceived by many as one of the biggest uh, changes in, uh, in the last decade? Well, you know, like any of these technologies, it really depends from sort of which angle you're looking at it from. A lot of what we did with Kubernetes was based on some early technology that Google had been working on and, you know, for 10 plus years before we started Kubernetes. I should also mention that, yeah, I was one of the, the three folks that started Kubernetes while at Google. And then, uh, uh, but there was a sort of a, a history of technology that was built on top of that around containerization. And so the first idea starts with containers, this idea to be able to take a program, package up everything it depends upon so that you have an artifact, a thingy. And then you have that artifact and you can now stamp it out relatively reliable in different places. And so that reproducibility around sort of an atomic unit of deploy is really a super interesting thing that enables a whole bunch of, you know, new technologies and new workflows, including Kubernetes. And you're able to do a bunch of this stuff with VMs. I think if you look at the way Netflix used EC2 early on, they very much used it in that sort of artifact that you can stamp out with VM images. But we often find that people bring, you know, preconceived notions to VMs and a lot of the workflows there actually end up being very much tied to the underlying platform that you're running on, whether that be, you know, vSphere or EC2 or GCP or what have you. And so one of the key things that, that I think Docker got right early on in the, in the sort of container explosion was this idea of making containers be an easy workflow that works in a ton of different places, relatively reliable. So you're not tied to any uh, underlying infrastructure and you get reproducibility from everywhere, from your laptop to you know, the cloud to something in your data center. And what we did with Kubernetes was really take that to the next step. Once you have this thing and you can deploy it reliably, how do you then automatically decide where you're gonna put that thing across a whole bunch of computers? And then once you start doing that, then a bunch of other problems really need to be solved. How do you do this at scale when you have a lot of these things? How do you do it with teams when you have multiple teams trying to coordinate on a shared set of infrastructure? How do you hook up networking between these things so that they can find each other when things are very dynamic? How do you handle storage in the dynamic system? And so Kubernetes is really a way to be able to solve all of those problems with the benefits really being twofold. First of all, one of efficiency. How do we efficiently use a whole set of machines in a very dynamic way across a, a team or a company? And then the second thing is that improved workflow, extending that into a multi-tenant, multi-team type of, of thing where you have a set of APIs that application developers have access to that are closer to the concepts that they think about versus being grounded in physical concepts like virtual machines. You know, in, in, in many aspects, Kubernetes looks like the world panacea. So maybe it will uh, also cure COVID and uh, we're, we're safe. Now, 
one of the interesting aspects of Kubernetes or, as, or, or this uh, concept of uh, development you brought uh, you guys in Google was the community-driven approach. Mm-hmm. Can you share a bit about, first of all, how did it all start and, and maybe then walk us through the, uh, the challenges? Yeah, the, the cloud work that I did early on at Google was starting Google Compute Engine, which was uh, GCP's uh, virtual machine as a service. And, you know, I showed that to one of my, you know, we had a reorg shuffle and I showed it to a new sort of director, boss, VP, I don't remember what his title was. And, and, you know, launched a command, got a VM, SSH'd in and said, here you go, isn't this cool? And he, is, he was unimpressed. Uh, and, uh, and his take on it was like, well, now what, right? What do we do now that I actually have a root prompt at, a, at this thing? Because so much of Google had been really built around Borg and this higher level set of abstractions. And so there was a huge gap between the concepts and the way that Google did development internally and sort of the state of the art that we had to build to actually be able to join the, the sort of the cloud marketplace. And so one idea with Kubernetes was to find a way to close that gap, find a way to have you know, a way for people to start using cloud in a way which was much more aligned with the way that Google thought about cloud, which the, with these higher level concepts. And so Kubernetes was very much inspired by the systems that Google had, Borg and its successor, System Omega. But it was, uh, it was really done from scratch because so much of the existing systems inside of Google were entangled with other systems inside of Google. And so it was very difficult to extract this stuff out and be able to actually present it to folks outside of the outside of the company. And then the other piece of the puzzle there was really one of just a competitive analysis. You know, that was very early on for GCP. It was still a new effort and relatively unknown. And if we had launched something like Kubernetes or Borg as a service, everybody would have been like, hey, that's really interesting. And then they would have ignored it, right? Because uh, you play a different game really when you're, when you're starting out and you're, you know, competitively the underdog. And so, a lot of the thinking behind open sourcing Kubernetes, which was very much a journey inside of to convince people of this inside of Google, was really this idea of like, let's just try and like shake the snow globe and change the way that people deploy apps, make it better. And in doing so, really create a new environment that creates opportunities for Google to be able to execute uh, on a somewhat more level playing field versus actually coming from behind with Amazon and EC2 having so much of a head start in cloud. And I think, you know, it worked really well because I think it really started to shift the conversation around how people move apps from, you know, writing directly to, to uh, you know, VMs and platforms and sort of building something that's very much entangled there to, you know, there is an alternative out there now that is a, a set of abstractions that are, while not perfectly abstracting the underlying infrastructure, really provide a degree of mobility that I don't think we've seen up until now. From your perspective, uh, obviously you're you know, one of the, the contributors, but can you understand why people are struggling with, with the open source now making its way into a prime time, into the enterprise? People uh, never dreamed about using open source in, in, in the main stage, like bringing open source now to, uh, to become a, a viable solution within the enterprise domain is something that uh, is kind of... Uh, was blessed for me years ago. So I'm, I'm trying to understand what's your, what, what's your uh, take on that? You know, I think it started with Linux. I mean, I was at Microsoft when Linux really started to emerge. And, you know, it always looked like, hey, this is, you know, and 
the discussions at the point were Linux on the desktop versus Windows and, you know, and whether it was a serious challenger or not. And I think along the way with the explosion of the internet and the need to be able to run servers at scale to do internet scale services, Linux ended up being just the natural choice for the operating system there. And that really paved the way. But I think for the longest time, open source was really like, oh, I'm going to use this library, whether it be, you know, a PNG decoder or OpenSSL. And the main sort of experience was driven through commercial offerings that actually ended up using open source's details. I think we've seen a change over the past, you know, decade or so as open source ends up being the experience itself. And so we no longer necessarily always have companies that are actually polishing up and exposing open source for you. Um, and I think Kubernetes is one example of that. I think, you know, a lot of folks will, you know, use a, a, a vendor like VMware as their introduction into, into Kubernetes. But we also want to make sure that if somebody is, you know, smart and, you know, wants to, wants to learn, they can go ahead and use the open source distribution of Kubernetes and be successful there. But if we look at a bunch of other technologies there, whether it be like, Node.js or the, the whole JavaScript ecosystem in general, or, you know, uh, Mozilla, I think, you know, with Firefox, there are all of these sort of, you know, hybrids where the open source project is the thing versus actually having a commercial entity sitting there. And this happened with, with Linux also with things like Debian. But I think we're starting to see that become more and more common where, where the project in terms of just getting the technology out there and the product in terms of making it consumable so that, you know, more users can use it. These things, the, the lines are definitely starting to blur. Yeah. Now, I'll pause for a second and, and I, I would like to pick your brain on a different angle. So you sit there and you're leading uh, the effort of Kubernetes, which you just shared with us about so many aspects that need, it needs to deal with. And you don't have like gazillions or endless resources. So how do you prioritize between all those needs? How do you decide what needs to get in and when and what's uh, going, you know, to be the next thing? So, I mean, from the open source point of view, you know, it's really one of these things where open sources communities are are really pretty unique and it's different than running a commercial product. Um, with a commercial product, you'll often have like product managers, which will talk to customers, prioritize features. And then the developers, you know, work with those product managers to actually scope those things out and build them. And there is sort of this, you know, overarching sort of arching like, uh, you know, set of priorities and goals for the product. And I think this is part of that sort of difference between product and project. When we start looking at projects like open source, it's really one of these things where, you know, if you show up and you want to write code and you want to dedicate yourself to the project, you get you know, that influence to be able to decide where things are going. And so oftentimes you'll have people coming to the project with differing ideas, differing agendas, differing priorities. And, you know, the, the goal of, you know, and the key for successful open source projects is to find those win-win scenarios where you can find things that people agree on and you can, you know, integrate them where you end up creating something that is, that is greater than any single vendor or any single contributor could actually do on their own. And so it really requires a, a degree of, of honest engagement and forthright engagement. I like to say that to be successful in open source, you have to wear your agenda on your sleeve. You have to say, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's why I'm trying to do it. And oftentimes it helps if you can say, and here's the business that I hope to build around it. And then other people are like, okay, I see that. That's not what I'm doing, but I'm doing this other thing over here. 
and you find common ground and then you move forward with that. It's fascinating to see open source contributors in a community like Kubernetes. You know, uh, uh, they'll move between companies, they'll work together over the span of years, and you'll come together in something like KubeCon, and I think people are definitely missing the in-person interaction because virtual's just not quite the same. But they're doing some really interesting stuff this time around. But people will come together, and there is sort of this feeling of, like, same team, different companies. And if you look at the, you know, one of the things that we did as we established governance for Kubernetes was lay out a bunch of values. And one of those things was like project over company, right? We really want people as they're engaging with Kubernetes to really understand that if we don't, you know, chop wood, carry water, another phrase we use a lot, then, you know, we'll fall prey to sort of the tragedy of the commons and we won't really have this thing that we can all benefit from long term. You know, in a way, we are kind of uh, going according to the vision. We are now all containerized. We just need now to find a way how to uh, to orchestrate the different. Uh... <laughs> there are parallel. There are parallels between orchestrating containers and orchestrating people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you know, as we did the governance for for Kubernetes, that that term governance is really interesting, also because a lot of government and politics and all that is really finding those win-wins and the compromise and ways to actually move everybody forward together. Uh, it doesn't always work, but there's a lot in common between these things. Yeah, yeah. Now I'd like to introduce you two terms and I would like you to uh, walk us between them. One is the, uh, what the industry used to know as uh, PKS, the Pivotal Kubernetes uh, System of, uh, and, and, and now, the uh, Tanzu Kubernetes uh, grid, uh, the TKG. Yeah, PKS and TKG, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So beside the um, almost unbearable pronunciation, can you walk us through the journey Tanzu is taking um, itself and the industry in terms of, okay, everybody knew Pivotal, but now there is something else, this Tanzu thing. So first of all, what is Tanzu, maybe in a few words, and then how... If I'm a Pivotal customer, or if not, you know, why should I engage with uh, Tanzu? So Tanzu is really sort of this synthesis of a whole bunch of different technologies and people and ideas coming together. As, you know, VMware looks to chart a course that, you know, comes from the basis of where we're really strong around infrastructure and virtual machines into how can we be really effective in helping connect that infrastructure to development teams and make them more effective. And so we often describe Tanzu as a portfolio of products and services that really help to connect infrastructure to people so that we can make teams more effective using cloud native technologies. A lot of this ends up being based on Kubernetes because Kubernetes, one of the things we didn't talk about is that as we built this system to deal with all the container problems, we ended up actually building a system that is a, a set of patterns and technologies that are good for building any sort of distributed control plane and distributed system. And so there's a bunch of ideas in Kubernetes that are sort of rising above the specifics of containers to really enable all sorts of cloud native experiences and new ways of doing things that, you know, containers are part of the mix, but like there's really some interesting ideas that are evolving from that. And so we really want to internalize a lot of that with Tanzu and make it available and approachable to a lot of enterprises that don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the time or the budget to be able to, to really become experts in Kubernetes so that they can go and like, a, you know, like I said, take the open source and make that work for them. 
Now, Pivotal, I think, um, has been an early leader for a long time pre-acquisition. And, you know, there's a complicated history with sort of like acquisitions themselves and spin-outs. And, but Pivotal has really established itself as building super highly efficient systems for making it easy for development teams to focus on writing their code and having a platform under them that really takes care of all the details of getting that code into production and making it work. And so we've seen an enormous amount of success with a ton of customers where if they adopt the set of constraints that come with something like Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Application Service, they can see an enormous amount of acceleration in terms of the efficiency of their development teams because they have this sort of turnkey self-service application environment to work with. That's been incredibly successful. The opportunity ahead of us now is to take that base and expand it. You know, you'll notice that what I said is that if customers are willing to actually live within the constraints of something like Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Application Service, they can see a lot of success. But there's a ton of applications and scenarios that don't work within those constraints and actually require you to sort of color outside the lines. And for all that, you know, is great about Cloud Foundry and PaaS, you know, if you can't fit within those constraints, your options in terms of staying with that platform and continuing to color outside the lines are relatively limited. It's pretty much like, okay, now you have to go and maybe start working with raw VMs, in it, which is a, quite the sort of like, you know, difference of experience to go from, here's some code, run it for me, to now I have to figure out how to manage VMs, right? That's a, that's a pretty big gap there. And so by taking the best of Pivotal and uh, the best of, of Kubernetes, we're really hoping that we can bring, you know, uh, uh, that super efficient developer experience, but then also have the ability to deal with all sorts of applications and scenarios that go beyond the sort of 12-factor app and do it in a smooth sort of scalable way so that, you know, folks take on complexity as they need the benefits of that complexity. Now, looking at sort of like the PKS versus TKG, one of the things that we're, we're doing right now is we're essentially reinventing sort of the basis of this around core Kubernetes ideas. So that idea of taking Kubernetes as being a generic control plane and reusing it for a whole bunch of things beyond containers. One of the things that we're doing with TKG is we're taking this technology that we're working with upstream in the core Kubernetes project called Cluster API and applying that there, which means that now instead of managing containers using Kubernetes concepts, we're actually managing other Kubernetes clusters using Kubernetes concepts. It's a little bit recursive and it kind of bakes your noodle a little bit. But the idea here is that we want to provide a system that allows folks to be able to manage a ton of Kubernetes clusters very easily because we find that like as we start dealing with enterprises, there's all sorts of reasons why you actually want to have different clusters for different environments, whether that be across regions across the world for data sovereignty, whether that be across business units, whether that be for test dev production. There's all sorts of drivers that really, that really lead to this. And so we want to provide a, a set of infrastructure that really plays to those needs that we're seeing from our customers. Yep. Now, let's pick a bit on a broader scale, which is the cloud itself. So if, if we're looking to a VMware cloud offering, uh, what's your vision over there? And maybe also, how, how does it resonate or how does it uh, grow into what we call today a distributed cloud ecosystem? Yeah, I think, you know, VMware, when it comes to cloud, you know, 
a large company like VMware, we have a bunch of customers that are really operating in different ways and there's a bunch of different needs, right? And so looking at our offerings, we really want to be able to serve folks at different levels. And so the core offering on, around VMware Cloud is really about running vSphere, the core VMware offering in and next to uh, cloud providers. So the idea is that you can go to Amazon and work with VMware and get a vSphere installation that is running on Amazon machines in the same data centers where the rest of AWS is running. And so this maintains that, that environment that VMware is so good at for being able to provide that sort of first-class, high-quality, virtualized environment that so many customers have come to rely upon. And it really uh, delivers a degree of flexibility to customers where they can actually have that uniform virtualized environment, both you know, in their data centers, but also right next to their, their cloud, cloud native assets you know, um, or uh, hyperscaler investments. Um, and then this also extends out to the edge with, with things like, like Dimension, where taking uh, the VMware footprint, standardizing that, and then being able to use that in uh, a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, more dispersed locations. And so there really ends up being a consistency at the virtualization level across all of these different areas. But then there's another set of customers that we want to address where they want to not have just consistency at that virtualization layer, but they also want to be able to understand, you know, across things that may not actually even include vSphere. And so that's really where Tanzu comes into, into the picture. So the goal with Tanzu is to provide that consistent developer uh, experience and management experience with Kubernetes as the basis, regardless of who and where you get your Kubernetes from. It works best on top of vSphere, on top of VMC, but we also want to make sure that you, you know, we don't actually create this sort of vertical need for customers that sometimes may not meet their needs and may not you know, deal with them where they are and with the, with the current investments that they've had. I think that's just part of being an enterprise vendor is that you have to recognize that, you know, to some degree, you have to work with customers. They always have messy footprints. It's never as like rip everything out and let's do it the clean way. There is no cleanliness and purity in enterprise IT. You know, it's always going to be in transition. There's always going to be uh, heterogeneous environments that you have to deal with. And I think that, you know, recognizing that and VMware being a partner with those enterprises is, is really one of our strengths. Interesting. And where do you see this uh, growing when it comes to the edge? And, and uh, how do you see VMware plays there? So edge is a really fascinating area. And I think we kind of do ourselves a disservice by trying to glom too much into a single term like edge. And I think we're starting to, and I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure there's some analyst out there that has a diagram that lays this all out and nobody else agrees with it. But like, you know, there's like far edge and fat edge and retail edge. And, you know, I don't even know, right? But I think that the general idea here is that we're moving to a world where you go from managing a handful of sites and a handful of infrastructure locations to hundreds or thousands of these things. And they get smaller and smaller as you go. And so this can be everything from a telco that actually you know, wants to put mini data centers next to 5G towers to um, a shipping company that wants to have infrastructure that has some level of local decision making right next to their... Um, their distribution centers where all the trucks are, or, you know, a retail outlet like a coffee chain where they might have 10, 15, 100,000 locations where they need to have some infrastructure that actually sits in those locations 
for doing everything from the music service to the order processing to, you know, the time clock keeping, right? And I think as we see, you know, the expectations around everything to, to really be informed by automation and computers over time, I mean, you know, I, I'm here in Seattle and uh, Amazon is trialing these stores where you like walk in and you grab some stuff and walk out and you look up at the ceiling and there's like, like it's just papered with, with cameras. You're not going to do that without a, a sophisticated compute infrastructure that goes all the way down to stuff that's happening in that store. Now, clearly for the Amazon stores, it's all AWS and their own technologies there, but it's not going to stop there, right? So the expectations for having more computing in more places is only going to grow. And so I think we're still struggling with understanding how do we manage that at scale and how do we actually start to make that accessible to more and more enterprises and more and more developers. Um, and so there was a time maybe 10 or 15 years ago where everybody thought cloud was going to be this thing and we were going to all you know, be in three big data centers, one on each, you know, you know, spread across the world. And, and it's pretty clear that like, to some degree, yes, that is happening. But we're also seeing these forces pulling us in other directions, too. And so it's not going to be as, as sort of neat and tidy as we thought it was going to be at that point. And uh, how, how do you see yourself playing in the, um, in the service mesh domain? Ah, so service mesh is really, really interesting. As opposed to edge, which was also very interesting. And uh, yeah. And how does service mesh and edge work together, right? Okay, exactly. <laughs> I think that's one of those things where it's like we have all this like this incredibly interesting soup of ideas where clearly with service mesh, there's something fascinating and interesting there. And there is a sort of a kernel of universal truth that's going to impact us for a long time. And so concretely for me, the interesting things about service mesh is that it provides a level of discoverability and routing that is more sophisticated than something like simple DNS. Um, so we're up-leveling the way that we name and route and get to things. It's providing an automatic level of observability by actually having all of these taps, all the, you know, that are relatively smart spread throughout your infrastructure. You can get insights and you can actually get information that you was very difficult to get before. And the third thing is that it can provide a level of, of security that starts getting closer and closer to the application. I think as we start getting more sophisticated about intermeshing of microservices and as we start seeing applications from being this sort of very vertical thing to essentially being a, a web of things within a larger context, the security domain has to get closer to the application. Um, and so I think service mesh really plays across all of those things. I think the current instantiation of service mesh binds all these things together, often in a very monolithic way. And so, you know, running a service mesh in a single location or a single cluster makes sense. I think, you know, one of the things that we're investing in with some of our products, and we have some, some open protocols that, that we're really working with others to work through is, how do you actually, instead of focusing on a single service mesh, how do we think about how do service meshes start to interoperate with each other and start to have federation, right? And that starts to play into things like edge, where, um, you, you know, do you want to run a single service mesh across wide area networks? I don't know. That's like, that seems a little dicey to me from a reliability point of view. Or do we want to maybe say we have service meshes that can run in different locations and we actually have the technology to have these things start interoperating with themselves, with each other in high fidelity ways. And for me, that's really exciting. I think that's one of the, the sort of futures of service mesh. And along the way, then, what that means is that it gives us an opportunity to experiment. So you can, might use a single service mesh that's good at one thing in one domain, 
a different type of service mesh type thing in another domain, and then have these things interact with each other with full fidelity. And so that you're no longer in this sort of all or nothing type of thing that we see often happening with service mesh implementations as they exist today. Yep. And, um, you know, this, this podcast is all about future of tech. So let's, let's have now uh, a, a few of those. So what's the future of Kubernetes in your eyes? We like to say we want Kubernetes to get boring. Um, good infrastructure is boring and it tends to disappear. You know, this is the whole, you turn on the light switch, the light comes on, you don't think about it. We want Kubernetes to get to that point. I mean, you said earlier after my initial pitch that, hey, Kubernetes sounds great. It's going to solve everybody's problems. And like, if you have a Kubernetes cluster that somebody else manages for you and you can just work against it, it's actually pretty great, right? I think, you know, that's kind of the idea. And I think there's still work to be done to make it be, you know, easier to use with higher level abstractions. But the core of Kubernetes provides something useful and something useful to build upon. And so I think we need to continue that work to make Kubernetes more and more boring so that people don't have to think about it. Nobody, like, I don't want to say nobody, but very few folks are waiting for the latest Linux kernel release because it's going to be awesome, right? It's like, it's like Linux is there, it works. Generally, we don't think about it, right? We want Kubernetes to get to that point. And in doing so, we're investing a lot in the Kubernetes community around extensibility. How do we make Kubernetes more and more and more a thing that you can build on top of versus get direct value out of. And so I think the, the future of Kubernetes is really in that larger ecosystem that's built around Kubernetes. And that's one of the things where um, if you go to the CNCF site, they have this landscape chart, right? This like, I, I think everybody's seen it. Yeah, yeah. It's both inspiring and horrifying, right? I think, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> we go to customers and we're like, and they're like, how am I supposed to understand what's going on here? This is, this is overwhelming. And they're right. It is overwhelming when you, it's not your full-time job to understand what's happening in that world. By the way, even if it is, it's still, horrifying. it's still overwhelming. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, that's what innovation looks like, right? That is like, there's a beautiful chaos there. That is the primordial soup that's going to lead to new ideas that are going to really advance us. And so I, you know, like, you know, we can have like this sort of, you know, rainforest where we're going to get the next, you know, miracle drug from some sort of, you know, plant or, you know, exotic frog. Or we can have a well-tended, you know, Versailles-like garden, and they both have their time and place. But I think we got to recognize that there's still value in that chaos. There's still value in the messiness of a, of a thriving ecosystem. And so our value as, as VMware is to help to sort of like bridge that gap. And we want to make sure that we can get folks started in this world. They can start drawing from that chaos, from that ecosystem if they want to, but they don't have to sort of like throw themselves in to get any value. We want to really sort of be a more gentle introduction into the world. So how, how far we are from the boring world? It's getting there. I think, you know, one of the things, and I think uh, COVID has definitely influenced it, is that there's a lot of talk, right? Right now, Kubernetes like has four releases a year, <laughs> which is, you know, a kind of a breakneck pace for, you know, a project the size of Kubernetes. There's talk of, of, of reducing that to three releases a year, especially like the fourth quarter around you know, the holiday season, it's like, it's very hard to get a release out then regardless. Um, combined with, you know, we're starting to see more and more interest in an LTS version of Kubernetes so that we can provide that longer term support. And for me, those are the signs of boring. When you look at like, hey, what are people talking about on stage at things like KubeCon? What am I seeing in my Twitter feed? What are the exciting things that are happening? 
it's all projects that are assuming Kubernetes is there and building on top of it. And less and less, they're like, oh, you have to have this brand new features that was released last week. It's more like, oh, this will work back to like 1.18, two or three releases ago. And so for me, that's some of the signs that we're actually, you know, starting to flatten out on the maturity curve. And I think that's really in some ways where the fun begins, because that's, that's now we have this new sort of like baseline and set of toys to play with as we look to do the next thing. Okay, so 10 years. <laughs> um, well, we're six years <laughs> into it, right? So there you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What's the future of cloud? I think edge is going to be fascinating. I think we're starting to see cloud be... We're seeing an emergence, I think, of a new product category with Tanzu actually being an example of this around how do we provide a way for people to manage applications across a set of infrastructure without necessarily being tied to the place that they're, that they're running, right? So when you go to a cloud provider, you're making a deal. You use their infrastructure and you get their advanced set of tools to work with it. And one of the things that we're seeing emerge is really starting to decouple those things. Can we provide an advanced set of tools and a cloud-like experience that isn't fundamentally tied to a single location or a single set of infrastructure? And some of the drivers around that are things like Edge, are things like the transition from corporate data centers. If you have a big application, a monolith or you know, something on a mainframe and you're looking to modernize that, Oftentimes what people will do is they'll will move to cloud and it'll be a two or three year effort and they'll, they'll try and both change where they're running and how they develop software and reinvent all their processes all at the same time. And, you know, as anybody who's led large projects knows, like the more complex things you try and do at once, the more likely you are to actually have failures and, and unexpected things come up. And so one of the things that like I think we're going to see is that folks start taking advantage of cloud native technologies, things like Kubernetes, but they can actually do it in a more incremental way. You know, for us, you know, you can take vSphere 7 with Tanzu Kubernetes Grid built in, run that right next to your mainframe, start refactoring pieces off of the mainframe, building stuff around it. Do that, you know, where, you know, you're, you're decomposing your, your monolith application and modernizing it. And then build that skill set of what does it mean to actually work in this new, more dynamic environment. Retrain your people, get them used to this while you're actually there, and then take that same set of technology once you actually have built that skill set, changed your culture, got people used to those ideas, and then you know, use that for the next step, which is being able to run in all the different places that you want to be able to run. And so I think that decoupling of these different motions is really going to be the future of cloud where it's really about the idea of cloud as much as it is about running on somebody else's computers. I also think that we're seeing a, an evolution around edge and you know, cloud actually being, I mean, people use terms like mist and I don't know what that means, but like, but like cloud being something that, that is, is not necessarily a big data center in Virginia or Oregon, but, like, <laughs> um, but really, you know, something that gets more dispersed, right? I think I'm waiting for somebody to say, oh, we can offer you a GPU within 10 milliseconds of, you know, 80% of the world's population, right? That is an interesting prospect for cloud that I don't think anybody has talked about quite yet. And I think we're going to see that start to evolve. And it starts to end up merging with, like, CDNs. I think we look at something like WebAssembly and what some of the CDNs are doing there. And I think that ends up being a really interesting area also. And I'm sure that regardless of where, how this stuff runs, Kubernetes will have a place to play. And I think it's definitely the type of thing that VMware is interested in going into also. So to that extent, IBM 
slash Red Hat OpenShift is uh, is direct competition or targets a different uh, in your in your analysis? You know, I started my career like I said at Microsoft, and and early on in my career, I, you know, I, I lived that world of coopetition where you're always going to have a set of of companies, and there's places where you cooperate and there's places where you compete. Yep. And that I think that's just sort of a way of life in our business. And I think that that's, you know, that probably applies to, to Red Hat and IBM. Yep. On the one hand, they're great partners. <laughs> and, you know, we love to see people using, you know, buying more vSphere to be able to run OpenShift, right? But then from, on the other hand, you know, we definitely find ourselves in competition with something like OpenShift. Yep. And I think that's just the reality of the business. And I think, you know, we do best when we really focus on, what do customers need? What do they want? How can we actually serve them and really add value and focus on, you know, just moving the ball forward in terms of adding customer value versus, you know, focusing on competition. Yeah. Do you see Google Xantos at the same, uh, the same playground? Yeah. I think Google, again, partner, right? I mean, like there's VMware on Google, right? So, you know, there's the, the VMware cloud yep. extends into GDP. But then at the same point, we definitely see Anthos as, as competition in this sort of like this sort of, you know, meta cloud sort of product segment that I think is emerging. What would be like uh, two or three tips for a CIO that is now listening to our podcast when it comes to the technological aspects? Yeah. 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 So number one is be very clear about sort of what you're looking to accomplish as you start these journeys and have incremental goals for what you're trying to do. I've seen the best success and, you know, I have um, one of our customers in mind uh, where, you know, you have a platform team and an application teams and they really, you know, you want to like, like they started small and they ended up transforming this into uh, from an adversarial relationship to a real sort of cooperative relationship. And so I think a lot of, a lot of uh, CIOs for large companies you know, when you really look at sort of what's happening today, you end up with your IT department, you end up with your developers, there's a ticket queue in between. And, you know, they may not hate each other, but they definitely, they may not like each other either, right? They don't, they see each other as getting in the way of the job that they, that they think they need to do. And so I think, how can you start small, get some proof points, use technology to essentially create that cultural change so that these teams actually become boosters of each other instead of adversaries. Um, so I think having that in mind and starting small with concrete lighthouse applications is the path to success. Adjacent to that, this is not just a technology problem that we're talking about here. This goes beyond technology. It really is about how do you actually start viewing technology and development as being a cost center to a competitive advantage. And that transition is a, is a cultural and sort of value transition that takes time. And so I think that's something that I think getting everybody used to that idea makes a ton of sense also. So, yeah, so that's a couple pieces of advice. And then I think part of it is, is, you know, don't take on complexity that you don't need yet, right? I think be very thoughtful about solving the problem, not sort of, you know, doing stuff because it sounds interesting and fun and new. And I'm saying that knowing that Kubernetes has definitely benefited from sort of resume-driven development or deployment, right? Like there have been people who have gotten interested in Kubernetes, but I think that that's, um, that's not long-term good for Kubernetes, the project, and it's not long-term good for the company. And so be very pragmatic about making sure that you're picking the technology that's going to solve the problems that you know you have 
versus the problems that you think you might have in the future. Great. Joe, um, it was fun. You know, we almost ran out of time, but uh, I ran out of questions. <laughs> Again, Joe, it was fun. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.